This is a record made in the chapel of the opened book and is number two of the series entitled The Form of Sound Words. At the beginning of this series and at each of these meetings, I want to repeat a few verses out of 2 Timothy chapter 1 so that those of you who are listening shall know where we get our uh, title and what the context is. I pick up the reading at verse 11 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. The apostle speaks about a gospel that's been entrusted to him. He says, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which has been committed against that day. You notice I've left out words. It doesn't say who committed it. And the context shows you it was committed by the Lord to Paul. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Verse 2 of chapter 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. There's no doubt about those words. The apostle has been set before us as a pattern, 1 Timothy, and the words that he has taught a form of sound words in 2 Timothy. There's no formalism about it. The word means uh, a preliminary sketch before the finished design with all its details is put in. But however many details are put in, it never exceeds, never goes beyond the bounds of the preliminary sketch. So we are not slavishly following the Apostle Paul, we are gladly following in his steps as far as it's possible. But we don't go outside and introduce that which has, has belonging to other callings and other dispensations, lest we, can, we bring about confusion. Well now, we are coming to the uh, first of the words and have been arbitrarily, or shall I say alphabetically, chosen. There's no reason why the word access should be the first one. We might have taken any word, but we must decide something. And here we are starting, using the teaching of the Apostle with regard to certain outstanding doctrinal, dispensational, prophetic and practical teaching in the Scriptures to be a little guide to ourselves and to those of you who are listening, so that you may use these with a certain amount of precision and scriptural accuracy. We come immediately to Romans, the fifth chapter, where the word occurs. Now, while we are finding the fifth chapter, let me remind you that the doctrinal part of Romans is practically chapters 1 to 8, and it falls into two parts. The first part ends with verse 11 of chapter 5, and the second part ends with the closing verses of chapter 8. Now, it would take us too much out of our way to prove that, so if you don't believe it, don't bother. But when you get to the concluding section of chapter 5, we have access. You see, in verse 2, and when you get to the concluding section of Romans 8, you have no separation. Well, you see, strictly speaking, that's positive and negative. 
if we have positively access into the presence of God, well then separation is not possible, is it? Because it's a contradiction. And so, you see, we are dealing in our first study with the last word almost. Because the whole plan of salvation is going to be visualized, as it were, and gathered up in these words. Access into the presence of a holy God and the guarantee that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, or any other creature that you can think of can separate us from that love. So we are at the very basis of things, you see. Now, we shall discover, as we go through, that the sacrificial work of Christ falls into two parts. Uh, or it may fall into many parts, but two main parts. One is the redemptive side, and one is the propitiation or the atonement side. And one is summed up in the word deliver from bondage, and the other is summed up in giving access to the very innermost part of the secret of God. And these are exemplified in the history of the people of Israel. They were delivered by the Passover lamb out of Egypt, and they were given access in type and shadow only in the tabernacle in the wilderness with the priests and the altars and the washings and so on. See, there was no priest, no altar, no washings, no ceremonials, except one outstanding token. When I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over you. Finish. That's all. No priest. Priests don't come in till they cross the Red Sea, and now comes the question of access. In a measure, it looks as though it was a simple thing, friends, to deliver us from the bondage of sin and death. But it's not a simple thing to give you and to give me access into the presence of God who cannot look upon iniquity, who is a consuming fire with regard to his holiness. And so he had to teach this people of Israel by means of various ceremonies and statements a little conception of a word that still baffles us as to its full meaning. I'm speaking of the word holiness. It's a word that's not in common use. We use the word right and wrong and just and true in everyday conversation or in commercial correspondence. But I think you could be pretty certain that if you looked at the whole year's correspondence of any of the banks and insurances round about here, unless they were actually dealing with a church or a Bible or something, they never used the word holy. It belongs to something to do with God. And the way in which he taught these people was to say, I've separated one land from the whole earth and I call it a holy land. Now, Palestine soil is no better than any other. Perhaps it's worse in some places. But it was separated by God for his own purpose, a holy land. And then he said, I'm going to redeem this people from Egypt from their bondage, and they shall be called a holy people. And then, oh, he says, you're not ready yet. You're in a holy land and you're a holy people, but now I'm going to separate one tribe from all that people, a holy tribe, Levi. But you're not ready yet. I'm going to separate one holy family from that holy tribe, from that holy nation, in that holy land, and you're not ready yet. From that one family I select one man, the high priest. Now what does he do? He goes into the holiest of all once a year 
and not without blood. That was to emphasize that this is no easy thing to say that we are approaching the living God. Now you can look up all those references that I've given you and you can see how God has made it sort of impress the mind that it's no easy thing to be made nigh or to draw near to the presence of God. But he's done it in type and shadow in Israel and in reality in Christ. Well in this course of these studies, the former sound words, we should have to deal with some of those things a bit more in detail but they are so vital that we've not wasted time because that is the very essence of the principle we're now looking at, the access that we have. The um, word, as you see, and it's good to keep uh, a little check on these words, prosagogi, sounds a bit, bit strange in our language, but you can see that it's very much like another word, synagogi. Or synagogi, we pronounce a synagogue. That's a place where people gather together. Prosagogi is the the uh, going into, the going forward together, being led. Uh, but uh, I don't think we'll take that further because it means dealing with verbs and nouns and whatnot, and I'll leave that to you to search out. You can find a good deal of interest. So now you see, on the chart, which will give us a little guide as to how we are approaching this, we can say that this word access is used by the apostle in the form of sound words, as a doctrinal, part of doctrinal teaching, and it's used in a dispensational section, and then it is used experimentally. Now, doctrine and dispensation differ in our use of the word. Now, I'm only using uh, modern expressions. But doctrine is what we speak about that which is universal. Sin is not dispensational. Jews are sinners, Gentiles are sinners. Civilised people are sinners and savages are sinners. Sin and death, they're doctrinal, they're universal. But there are some things that belong to the Jew that have no reference to the Gentile. And some blessings and some things to do with the Gentile that have no reference to the Jew. So we call those dispensational. There's one verse in Romans, the first chapter, which gives you an illustration. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, that's true for all time, friends, whatever you belong to. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. That's still true. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. No, that isn't true today. Jew isn't first today. And you couldn't be joined as a wild olive to the olive tree of Israel if you wanted to. For there, for the moment, cut down by the roots. So you see, we have this word then used doctrinally, we have the used word dispensationally, and the word experimentally. So shall we look at that? Well, the passage before us, Romans 5, is the one that gives us the doctrinal. Now it says, in verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith. And I've remarked before that there is a bare possibility that the words by faith belong to the next sentence. Because, you see, if you have patiently followed the Apostle's argument from chapter 1 to this moment, you've come to the conclusion there's no possibility of anybody being justified any other way. There's no possibility of being justified by the law of Moses or by your own works or by anything you could do. So, he says, now, having reached this point, therefore, being justified by faith, by the self-same faith, by faith, we have peace with God. 
and hour, you see. Here we've got the connection between peace and righteousness. The fruit of righteousness shall be peace. And there is no peace to the wicked. Peace, oh, it's one of the words we should have to consider, but by the time we get to the letter P, we shall have it all over again. The word peace, especially the Old Testament word, means satisfaction. A price paid. The whole thing settled. Not merely hushed up. Not merely quietness. But something's been done and so that which divided has now been brought together. Being justified. By faith we have peace with God. In the earlier summing up, when it spoke about the guilt of the whole world and the way of peace, they have not known. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. So this peace is a peace which means that all enmity that once existed has gone. It's always wise when you're thinking of a word to think of its opposite. The opposite of peace is strife. Enmity. And uh, if you like to see the, the way in which the Apostle has employed that double use, Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he is our peace, who hath made the both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. See, the peace is the result of the abolishing of enmity. Well, this is the next reference. Uh, chapter Ephesians 2, verse um, 14 down to verse 18. It won't do us any harm then to go back a little bit. We start this section with verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Now that's putting you in a category. You belong to the Gentiles who do not belong to this other company that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. It's a pretty hopeless condition, isn't it? But what's happening? But now, here's the change. But now, in Christ Jesus, and not outside of him, but in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And so he sums it up in verse 18, for through him we, the both, have access by one spirit unto the Father. We're made nigh. If we're made nigh, we have access. Now, the figure that's used here is the breaking down of the middle wall of partition. Verse 14. For he is our peace who hath made the both. Always remember, it's the both and the twain, a particular both. He's bringing together here the Jew and the Gentile, quite irrespective of all the promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They are for the moment suspended. But if a Jew now believes on Christ and trusts him as a saviour, he stands here. And the Gentile is no longer an outsider. He's brought near. This is a new calling. Who hath made the both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, and that enmity resided in commandments and ordinances. Now once the Jew 
was separated from the Gentile in the church. The fact that they observed all any amount of ordinances and they agreed that they would impose upon the Gentile believers only these one, these two or three. And because, you see, if you belong to a society that observed 50 different ordinances and somebody else belonged to a society that observed only four, well, you'd be the superior people, wouldn't you? You'd be the Pharisee sort of type, you see. It made an enmity. We had a very delightful little interval between the two meetings and we had about, I think, 14 of us sat down to lunch today. But nobody ever looked one up and down and said, um, uh, Brother, I'm afraid you'll have to sit over the other side because you happen to be a Jew or happen to be a Gentile. Never entered our head. But if you lived in the early church in the Acts of the Apostles, we'd never have had a company like we had downstairs today. We should have had one lot sitting at one table and the other lot sitting at the other table. And they wouldn't have eaten the same food. And they would have been disgusted with some of the food that the other ones ate. Some of the stuff you had today, you would never have been permitted to touch if you'd been living in the early church in the Acts of the Apostles. You see? Now that middle wall of partition's gone. Now some of us know what the middle wall of partition refers to, but it's my business to make sure that those who are listening to me shall also know. So give me a moment. We have in our possession in London the actual slab of stone that was taken, that was in the temple area in the time of Christ. And if any of you ever visit the Palestine Exploration Fund at the back of near Selfridges, no advertisements are mentioned here, I'm only just telling you the direction, you'll find that there it is, accessible to anybody who likes to go. And you can see the very stone, it's not a copy, the very stone that Christ himself could have looked at and the Apostle refers to. And it gives this warning, no one being a foreigner is permitted to pass this banner. Whoever does will be accountable or responsible for the death which will immediately follow. You could be punished by death and the Roman law allowed it that no Gentile should enter the sacred precincts of the temple. So Peter and Cornelius could walk through Jerusalem streets right up to that barrier and then, both saved by Christ, both accepted in him, but you stop outside Cornelius, I go in. We belong to a calling where the middle wall of partition has gone. But there's something else. Something else and deeper. You notice the second line under this word access? There's a red veil. Shall we turn back for a moment to Matthew 27? Matthew 27, um, verse 50. We're at this awful moment of the crucifixion of Christ. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. You remember in the record that John gives us, he said, it is finished. And when those words were said, a streak of lightning practically split the veil that was there hanging in the temple from top to bottom, not bottom to top. No human hand did it from top to bottom. And Josephus tells us that it would take several yoke of oxen on either side to tear that veil apart because of its strength. And there that veil kept men out from the presence of God. 
That vile way. So will you now turn to the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 10. Chapter 9 first, because chapter 9 gives you the idea and layout of the tabernacle. It says in verse 2 of chapter 9, there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the holy place. But after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. Now it says, in verse 7, into the second went the high priest alone, once, every year, not without blood, which he offered by himself and for the errors, uh, offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Now, if you should say, oh, but then that's Old Testament, they, we have nothing to do with us. Look at the next verse. The Holy Ghost, this signifying. Well, either that's true or false. If it's true, then this type has got the stamp of God upon it. And it's a picture of the work that Christ has done in the heavenly spiritual sense. If you say, I reject that, well, I think we'd better go home because we've got no hope. Our salvation's gone. Christ has been eliminated. And all this is just so much junk flummery. If you want to look up the word junk flummery, well, you'll find out what it means. Now, it says, the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way to the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So now we turn the page, chapter 10, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, make the comers thereunto perfect forever. You notice the difference? The word continually doesn't belong to the words year by year. Now I'm going to give you the reason for it in verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected continually, no, he hath perfected forever, same word, them that are sanctified. And the word forever is not the usual word. This is about the most explicit word in the Greek language for everlastingness. Stronger than the words forever and ever. This is unto perpetuity. So we'll read the two again. Verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected unto perpetuity them that are sanctified. Now back again to verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, make the comers thereunto perfect unto perpetuity. It only lasted, he says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But it went on and on every year and every month and every day. So we come further down to chapter, verse 11, and every priest standeth, Daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. One of the words and terms of the form of sound words, we should have to get the reason why he sat down. And we should have to get the reason why he sat down at the right hand of God and not the left. 
It's all there embedded in the book. But you see, now then we're coming to the red veil again. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now I want to turn, keep your finger in this page, turn back to Ephesians and look at the other reference that we have not referred to in Ephesians 2 and 3. Uh, chapter, uh, what is it, 2, uh, 3, what is it? 3.12, is it? Yes, 3.12 in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Look at the pile of words there. You could understand almost that we would go timidly to the door and tap them gently. Always says, don't shuffle your feet on the mat there. Come in, come in. Boldness, fancy, boldness of access into the presence of the living God because of him. Well, I think that must be. Either we have boldness or we couldn't go at all. So now we're back in Hebrews. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Now he's explained here what he didn't explain to the Ephesians. Paul writing to the Hebrews can speak a bit more intimately about their tabernacle service than the Gentiles knew. And he said that veil represented his flesh. On it was the cherubim woven, both sides completely woven, a perfect representation of service to God. And while that hung there, instead of it being good for us, it was bad for us. If Christ had never died, the fact that he was holy, harmless, separate from sinners, the fact that he was sinless, the fact that he perfectly obeyed the Father would condemn us. For there was one who did. But after he had done all that, then he laid down his life for our sakes, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Is the idea. Bringing us to God. Access. So he says, by a new and living way, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. You notice? We have been made nigh. Then, only and then, can we say to one another, let us draw near. Notice the way the word let comes after having. Verse 19. Having something. Verse 22, let us. Verse 23, let us. Verse 24, let us. See, our re reply is based upon the fact the door is open. Now let us draw near, let us do these things. You'll find it comes several times in the epistle to the Hebrews. Well, that's one aspect of this thing, friends. The access that has been made. The rent veil, that's the, the dividing line between God and man, and the broken down middle wall, the dividing line between Jew and Gentile. Both cases, access is the consequence. Oh, let's be thankful that we have no need for an intervening priest down here. We have no need for an altar down here. It's all finished. There was once an occasion when somebody came in, as they do, he walked right up here and he bowed and crossed himself in front of my blackboard. So I knew what was coming. He's just going to take the name of Christ in vain in order to extract half a crown out of me. That's all. There's no altar here. And one of the boys who live in this neighbourhood, which is dominated largely by the Roman Catholic Church at the other end, 
He said, God, that isn't the place of worship. You haven't got an altar. But we have in the sense, you see. But it's an altar where the work's finished. There's no need for an officiating priest. We have Christ at the right hand of God. His work finished and that's still now a counter. We have access. Some of the figures he's used of himself were prepared in the way, I am the door, by me if any man enter it. I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But he didn't say there exactly how until the work was done. Well now I want to take this just a stage further. We've got about another ten minutes. I won't keep you beyond your time. But I think we ought to take it in this sense that um, if we are if we are given this access to give us this boldness, to give us this sort of feeling that it's all clear, we ought to make sure that we are acceptable. Don't you think so? Well, you say we are. Yes, well, let's make that clear for everybody. We'll go back to Ephesians 1. Now, Ephesians 1 is dealing with the purpose and the work of, of uh, the purpose of the Father and the work of the Son going back before we ever had anything to do with it at all. And it sums up the will of the Father in verse 6. You do know, don't you, that it's an easy and helpful way of dividing up the first 14 verses. From 3 to 6, it's the will of the Father. And from 7 to 12, it's the work of of the Son. And from 13 to 14, it's the witness of the Spirit. The will, the work, and the witness. Well, at the close, verse 6, it says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Unless we were accepted in the Beloved, there'd be no access for you and me. So here's the way in which the work of Christ is now uh, made to our account. But then there's another feature, and that, I think, should be considered. Supposing we look at Romans chapter 12. Now this is practice. We've got beyond the doctrine now, this is the application of it. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, not a dead one, not a dying one, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Oh yes, and that's fantastic. Oh, says Paul, that's your reasonable service. Which is true. Oh, this is true. The word reasonable here is the word logical. As a logical result of all that Christ has done, now you can offer to God something like he did, only in its degree. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So you present yourself acceptable to God and then in the next step you begin to prove what is acceptable unto him. And if you look at the next two chapters you'll find that they fell down over this. Verse 14, chapter 14 him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, 
and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth why for God hath received him and the end of that section is verse 7 of chapter 15 wherefore receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God so you see you must receive because God has received but then you see Paul goes on to say oh dear oh dear I've got a difficulty now uh, verse um, 15 of chapter 15, uh, chapter 15 nevertheless brethren I've written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God that I should be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the gospel of God that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable being sanctified by the Holy Ghost but he says you know I've got me doubts because I'm praying now I want you to pray for me I'm on my way now to Rome and uh, I'm taking I'm taking the gift I'm starting reading verse 25 but now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are in Jerusalem it hath pleased them verily and their debtors they are for if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. I am sure that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. But he says, I do want you to remember, he says, I want you to pray about this. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, here it comes, and that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints. Do you notice? He was perfectly certain that these Gentiles were accepted by God. But he says, I've got me doubts as to whether the Holy Ones of Jerusalem are going to accept them. Fancy that. God has accepted them. And when you read the story in the Acts of the Apostles, there's Paul actually goes to Rome with gifts made by the Gentiles. And they never say a single word about it. He takes it to them. He lays it at their feet. And they say, oh, Paul, we've heard about you. And uh, the, oh dear, oh dear, there came all that bother that put him into prison. No wonder in one part of the Old Testament let me fall into the hands of God and not into the hands of men. These were accepted by God. And he said, strive for me in prayer that I may be accepted by the saints of Jerusalem. So what, what a need there is to watch that we follow in the steps of our Lord in this direction. So I think there's one passage, uh, let me make sure of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if I'm wrong, I'll have to leave it out. Yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He's here discussing the transitoriness of this human life. He says, for we know that if our earthly house, which is a tent, the genitive of nearly, uh, is very difficult sometimes to translate into English, but it doesn't quite read 
the earthly house of this tabernacle. If, for we know that if our earthly house, which is a tent, were dissolved, collapsed, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan. Now I start off on a new subject here, but I said to the friends, it happened to come in another context, I said to some friends, you say to yourself, fancy living in a house with that man, that me. I suddenly get up from my desk and I go out into the kitchen where mother's making a cake, I say, you listen to this, that word groan, oh fancy, groan. But you see, it's got a, a meaning, a special meaning. It enters into our very commercial language when we speak about a stenographer. Now, it doesn't mean to say that you're groaning because you're using a typewriter. Why do you call it a stenography? Stenos is the word to be cramped. See, the technical term for angina, that terrible heart attack, is stenos. Cramp. Not merely groaning, but cramped. And so it says, we are in this tabernacle cramped. And in Romans 8 it says that we are waiting because we're groaning now. This crampingness, we're waiting for the liberty of the glory of the sons of God. The idea of at last coming out of your chrysalis and expanding your wings and flying. Well, that's only by the way. Forget it if it's not of any use to you. We may have to deal with it much more afterwards. But it's coming again, you see. It says in verse 9, Wherefore we labour. This is another alternative, you see, to this struggling, this being cramped. Wherefore we labour, that whether present or absent, whether we're in his presence in the glory, whether we're absent down here in this present world, whether we're in the tent which is wearing out, or whether we've at last moved into the house not made with hands, one thing will remain unchanged in this life and in that. Whether we are present or absent, one thing we should have very much in our minds that we might be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So not only are we accepted in the beloved in the sense that our sins are gone and never will come up again, we can answer the challenge, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? But so far as our service is concerned, that's going to be scrutinised. So there's another aspect. So we, first of all, stand resolutely, unmoved, on our acceptance in Christ. And then we walk very, very delicately with regard to our service, knowing how easy it would be us for us to slip here and slip there. And from the one acceptance, perfect and complete, we look forward to all the possibility, possibility of being accepted as a good and faithful servant, as well as a poor sinner saved by grace. I think that's about as far as we'll go today with this first word of the series, the form of sound words which we have heard of the Apostle Paul and which enter into the warp and woof and fabric of his teaching and doctrine and should enter into ours. And we've seen that this one word has its place in doctrine, in dispensation and in practice. And in many other cases we shall find the same ramification. So may the Lord help us to realise that we can't divide our lives up 
into departments and be doctrinally true and dispensationally false or practically erratic. But we shall need all the grace of God to be true in each one of those spheres. And I trust that these little labours of which you've been taking part this afternoon will be blessed of the Lord as a contribution to the end.